Well, we're jumping back into this series that we've been in titled Rebuilding Church. And in this series, we're exploring the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, hoping to excavate nuggets of wisdom as we reach and long to reach for some orientation in our lives as a church in these days. I was recently listening to a podcast with a couple of pastors within our denomination, and one of them asked the other, he said, so how is church going? To which the one pastor responded, honestly, I'm not quite sure how it's going after two and a half years of COVID, to which the question asker responded, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. To which I responded in my car listening to this, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. You see, as we seek to find our bearings in these days, we find ourselves in a rather disorienting time and place as a church and as Christians in the world today, as people in the world today. And we are looking to these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, for direction of how we might find our bearings in these days. This week marks our first foray into the book of Nehemiah. And so if you have a Bible, you're welcome to flip open there. You could grab one in the seat in front of you. But we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. And the book of Nehemiah is actually structured very similarly to the book of Ezra. The first six chapters of Ezra and Nehemiah are dedicated to rebuilding that which was destroyed by the Babylonians. Really, the effort in those first six chapters is to try and make the land holy again. In Ezra, it's about rebuilding the temple so the land could be holy. In Nehemiah, it's about building the wall so that the land might be holy. And the second half of each of these books is dedicated to talking and thinking about what it means to be a holy people. How do we make people holy? We know how to build temples. We know how to build churches. We know how to do religious ceremonies. But... How do we make people holy? And both of these things, by the way, are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We're not going to get into those things. But Christ is the one that makes all places holy. And Christ is the one that when we are in him makes us holy. But this morning, though, our focus will not be on the rebuilding of the land of the people, but on the servant Nehemiah. So hopefully I gave you enough time to find Nehemiah chapter 1. Hopefully I gave myself enough time to find Nehemiah chapter 1 so you know that I actually know the Bible a little bit. But I invite you to hear with me. We're going to be reading verses 1 through, I think, 4, and then we're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 together. So hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. (coughs) Nehemiah 1. These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I, Nehemiah, was in the capital city of Susa. One of my brothers named Hanani came with some other men from Judah. Excuse me. I asked them about Jerusalem and the Jewish people who lived through the captivity. They answered me, those who are left from the captivity are back in Judah, but they're in much trouble and are full of shame. The wall around Jerusalem is broken and its gates have been burned. When I heard these things, I sat down and cried for several days. I was sad and fasted. I prayed to the God of heaven. Jump down to verse 11, the very last sentence of the chapter. Nehemiah says, I was the one who served wine to the king. There's a reason why I want you to read that, not just because I want you to become a bunch of winos, but it's an important verse for our sermon this morning. 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It was the month of Nisan, and the 20th year of Artaxerxes was king. He wanted some wine, so I took some and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king said, why does your face look sad? Even though you are not sick, your heart must be sad. Then I was very afraid. I said to my king, may the king live forever. My face is sad because the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what do you want? First, I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I answered the king, if you are willing and if I have pleased you, send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let me say a quick prayer. God, we are grateful that you are a God who speaks. We're grateful that you are a God who meets people who need healing, like our new friend in Hawaii. But we believe and confess that your word can speak a new word into the life of our church, into our lives, oh God. And so we attend ourselves to your voice and to your speaking this morning, and we plead with you, speak, O God, for your people are listening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I've shared this a couple of times before, but in our relationship, Paige and I have a lot of things that we do. We take out the trash. We need to bathe the children. We need to go grocery shopping. We need to clean the bathroom. We need to go to the grocery store. And early on in marriage, it became apparent to me that we can mean at least three different things when it's pronounced in our household. It can be a you-we, like you actually need to go take out the trash, but I'm saying we need to take out the trash. It can also be an I-we, like, ah, uh, we need to go to the grocery store. I really don't want to go, but I know I'm supposed to go. Or it can be a we-we. And yes, you need to have a long pause between that third one because those pronouns next together make small children giggle or they make grown men giggle too, like myself, when I wrote this in my office. So now I often ask, when Paige says that we need to do something, I'll say and respond, what kind of we is that? <laughs> like, what exactly are you saying right now? In congregational life, in church life, we use the we phrase in very similar ways, but with a slightly different twist. I remember early on in ministry at Long Beach First Church of the Nazarene, people would say to me, we need to get younger as a church. And I would look at 82-year-old Doc Hardison, and I said, well, there's a problem there, Doc, because your age operates on a one-way street. Like, you are not getting any younger, right? To which he responded, not me. The church needs to get younger people in the congregation. The church needs to get younger. And I've heard this phrase a countless number of times. Oh, I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard the phrase. The church needs to fill in the blank. The church needs to grow. The church needs to take discipleship more seriously. The church needs small groups. 
The church needs better care and visitation. The church needs to value the elderly. The church needs to value the young. And as a young minister, I initially thought the same way that I thought in marriage. When people said that, they said the church needs to. It was like, oh, you mean you, church, like me. You, pastor, need to get the church to grow. We're not going to invite anyone. Just grow the church for us, please. You, pastor, you need to get groups going. I don't want to lead a group. I actually don't even want to participate in a group because it makes me feel uncomfortable, but you need to get these groups going so that we feel like there's some activity. You need to do visitation, pastor. We don't actually care enough to, you know, go see our people, so someone's got to do it. I'm just kidding. That's a little cynical of me. I shouldn't say it that way. You need to get younger people here, pastor. Go find them. You know them. You're like, you're closer to their age than we are, so why don't you just go get them? Like, I don't know where they go. I don't know. But over the years, though, I've begun to ask and seek some clarity on what people mean when they say the church needs to blank. Now I ask, who is that exactly? When you say the church needs to, who are you, who do you mean? Who is that? Is that a you church? Or is that a me church? Or is that a we church? There certainly are some things that fall into all of these categories. There are things that I need to do as a pastor. There's things that you need to do as congregants and members of the church. And there's things that we need to do collectively. And this morning, I want us to pay close attention to the character of Nehemiah. Because I feel like he embodies some of the characteristics that shift us as church folks to think of the church as something that we actually collectively do together. We often fail to use two of those three forms of the we in church. The I, we, and the we, pause, we. But Nehemiah's character reflects in many ways a, a, a number of things, but three things that I want us to attend to that I think help shape and cultivate a congregation and the people in a congregation to care truly about we and to participate in that life. And I find Nehemiah such a significant character for us to consider because he's not a priest or a scribe. In Ezra, we have Ezra, he's a scribe, he's a religious teacher, he knows the law, he's going to preach, he's going to do his thing. But that is not true of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is just a guy. He's just a cupbearer. He's just a guy with a normal job. He works for the Persian government. He do, and he doesn't allow that position. He doesn't allow that label or the lack thereof as a hindrance for him to serve and care for the community of faith. And so three things I want us to attend to this morning that I think, quite honestly, if we form these three things, would radically transform our communal life together as a church. The first is this. They're not going to be on the screen. I should have put them on the screen. Dang it, Ken, you did such a good job with the screens. First is this. You're going to have to pay attention. You could write it down. Nehemiah identifies with those he serves. Nehemiah identifies with those he serves. We might say that Nehemiah leads, if you want a word, with empathy. Nehemiah was not in those first two waves of exiles to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. In fact, we see that, that Nehemiah in this moment is working as a cupbearer. The people of God had returned to Jerusalem 60 years previously before Nehemiah's story picks up. And Nehemiah did not go initially and he's just a cupbearer for the king. 
Now, this may sound like an inconsequential position, similar to like a butler, right? Like my picture of Nehemiah when I first read this is he's got like the tuxedo and the little bow tie and the silver platter, and he's walking around serving wine to the king and his friends. But the cupbearer was actually an incredibly important role in a world where people were not only vying for political power, but willing to assassinate for it. The king had to be on high alert. You see, a common tactic to try and kill kings and emperors and queens and empresses was through poisoning. And so the cupbearer had to make sure that everything that was served to the king was safe for the king to consume and eat. The cupbearer, in many ways, had to be trusted by the king more than the king trusted his own family. Because oftentimes, the king's family are the ones who wants to come after him. And so Nehemiah serves in this really really significant role in the Persian Empire. But serving in this role also made Nehemiah privy to information that may otherwise have been inaccessible to other Jews living in Babylon. When his brother returns from Judah, he inquires as to how the returned exiles are doing. Is the temple built? Is the city constructed? Are there homes? Are there neighborhoods? Are there businesses going on? And he receives this report that things are not going well at all. They're going really poorly, actually. His brother says, everyone there is actually in really big trouble. They're living in poverty. They're living in brokenness. They're living in a constant state of potential threat. And they are full of shame. That last part, I don't know how many of you ever sat there in your life where you look at your life circumstances, you're like, this is hard, this is hard, this is hard. But the thing that is like, overwhelmingly burdensome is that you feel horrible about that state of your life. That's these people. And Nehemiah's response is not like, ah, that's too bad. (laughs) Right? Like, oh, I wish that they would get, you know, I hope things turn around for him. I I hope it all gets a little bit better. No. Nehemiah writes that when he heard these things from his brother, he sat down and cried for several days. I was sad and I fasted. I sat down and I cried for the sufferings of these people for days. I was sad and I fasted. You see, the starting point for Nehemiah's involvement in the rebuilding project of God's people and the city, it didn't start from a place of inspiration. It didn't even start from from somebody inviting him to come share in the work. Like, hey, can you come and be a part of it? It's not going well. Hey, we got these grand plans. Here's the the architectural schemes and how we want to lay out the city. And you kind of get excited about what's going on. It started because he identified with the plight of his people. Their sadness became his sadness. Their struggle became his own. Their shame became his shame. This past Wednesday evening, we had a couple missionaries that are part of our church come and share about their work that they're doing in the Middle East. I don't know if I'm allowed to say what countries they're in because we're live streaming, but... And we heard stories that in this part of the world where they live, the the financial system and the economic structures of these countries has utterly collapsed. Sending the price of eggs from what was $4 for a dozen to about $50 for a dozen eggs. The price tank of a 
for the price for a tank of gas, <laughs> sort of reasonably priced, and now costs upwards towards one's income for the month. We heard stories of 800,000 people finding refuge in Lebanon. That's 20% of the population are people who've been displaced from their homes. And in that migration, kids got behind in school. Food was hard to come by and work was near impossible to find. And whenever I hear stories like these, I always wonder now, especially since I had kids, like, what if that was my circumstance? What if I was that parent that was so uncertain about where food was going to come for my five-year-old and two-year-old that you guys saw running around here this morning? What if it was them that weren't receiving education? And what if I wasn't able to provide it? What if I can afford simple things like eggs to feed my family? We hear stories like this all of the time. They fill our Twitter feeds and they, they, they fill our news headlines. But there was something about hearing it from our own missionaries that hit a little bit different for me. These were people, these refugees, those people out there, they're friends to our missionaries. These are people who attend our Nazarene church in the Middle East. They're our family. And it moves me to want to act or do something, right? Like after our, they, they talked, we, we began to, to consider like, all right, maybe we need as a church to go do a work and witness trip all the way to the Middle East with a few people. Who wants to go? All right, so, no, I'm just kidding. We don't have to sign up right now. Others came up to me afterwards and like, how do we help contribute financially to the work that's going on over there? I hope you got the link this past week that I sent out. But this kind of response to suffering and pain cannot happen just for those things that happen on the other side of the world. They have to happen here. If we are going to be a church, if we're going to, quote, rebuild church, if we're going to be the church that, that is here, we have to have that same empathetic posture towards one another. Do we sit with each other in that same way? Because the call when you come and you're part of a congregation isn't like, hey, we got this like organization, we got all these programs and activities, can you volunteer? It's going to be wonderful, we're trying to build this thing. No, what we're inviting you into here is can you love and empathize with those who are sitting in this room? When you hear of Kim Rogers, a, a 12, 16-year-old, um, her cousin's grandson, stage four cancer, metastasized to his body. Are you moved to do something for that family? When you hear about a cancer diagnosis, when you hear about a death or suffering, are we moved to weep and to cry and be sad in a way that animates our life toward one another to want to do something? Or is it just a story we tell about how sad it is? I'll pray for you later. It's not going to be a sermon, church. It's not going to be a book that you read. It's not going to be anything other than your own identification with the other people in this church 
that will ever help you move beyond yourself to care and to love. If we are going to be a church, it must start with a sincere identification with each other's humanity, especially in our brokenness, especially in our weakness, especially in our failures. The second thing that we need and what we see in Nehemiah's character is that we need to be reliant on prayer. We need to rely on prayer. Sunday school answer, it is so easy and obvious in the text, but we have to be a people who pray. I'm struck in these first two chapters of how reliant Nehemiah is on prayer and knowing how to respond to what he's hearing and experiencing in his life. There's this, uh, there's a pastor who used this illustration that I love that I'm going to steal just here for a second. There's a pastor I heard, he tells this story, he said, all right, let's say God showed up to you today, like it was just, you, it was obvious that God is here. And God said to you, all right, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the cemetery over down by the burger joint, and I want you to bring somebody back to life that's been buried in the cemetery. What would you do? What would you do if God really came and said, like, I want you to go, and I want you to bring this person back from the dead? It's a crazy story, right? It's kind of silly. It's kind of goofy. But like, I, like really think, like, what would you do? Would you have me come and like preach my best sermon over the grave, right? Like you're like, hey, I think this pastor, he's got a killer way of presenting the gospel. That's supposed to bring new life. Like maybe we'll bring the pastor there and he'll give some sort of sermon and maybe something will happen. Or maybe we could like wheel the keyboard down and somehow get power over by this graveside and Garrett can play the keyboard and we could get just the right sort of progression, right, Garrett, to set the mood so that we can respond and maybe that body will respond and like, come, like, what would you do if God said, I want you to bring that thing back to life? I think what I would do is I would find Becky I would find Eric and I would have, I, there's too many people in our church actually to name. These like sincere prayer warriors. And I'd be like, God, Hail Mary time. Because we literally, there's nothing we can do. I have nothing really to offer in this moment. There's no skill set that I've developed. There's no talent that I have to lay before you. We actually just need you, God, to show up and do something miraculous to bring new life to the dead. You see, what we are trying to do here, church, is not merely grow an organization. What we're trying to do here isn't just to have more seats filled up. We're not trying to increase our budgets. What we're trying to do here is to see people's lives radically transformed by Jesus. To see that which was dead to sin be made alive in Christ. And guess what? That is going to take on our part. You got to pray desperately. One of the gifts that I feel like this moment that we're in as a church and many churches are in in this moment is there's a real obvious truth that is present to us that we've forgotten that like, oh, we really need God to show up here to do something. We aren't good, like talented enough to do this thing. See, we... Like Nehemiah, need to be reliant on prayer. 
as an expression of our need to be reliant on the God who can bring the dead back to life. Amen? Third thing is this. Nehemiah risks personal involvement. Oh, he used the P word. Nehemiah risks personal involvement. When Nehemiah hears about the difficulties of his people in Jerusalem, he doesn't just get sad for a few days and then sort of ease his way back into work, right? Like, oh, that was so sad. I hope that they're doing all right. I'll say a couple prayers. Nehemiah doesn't stop with prayer. Nehemiah moves to become personally involved with the rebuilding project in Jerusalem. And this move toward involvement for him comes with risk. He risks offending the king, right, with the news that he wants to leave. When the king says, why are you so sad? And he's like, long live the king because I'm about to say something that could get me in really big trouble. He risks the potential of losing this position of prestige and power. In fact, he does lose it. He's like the second most powerful, influential person in the Persian Empire. And he walks away. If you read the rest of chapter 2, Nehemiah asks the king, he says, all right, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, but can you like send some people and some writings with me that I could be safe along the way? Because this journey is super dangerous to just be walking around the Middle East back in the 6th century BC, right? He risks taking on the poverty and trouble and shame of the people of Jerusalem. Who wants to be associated with that, right? Who wants to be associated with that thing that's just so unimpressive? Who wants to... Who wants to be a part of that thing that's a little, you're just sort of embarrassed. You ever, you ever have that feeling where you got like a friend and you're like, oh, I got to introduce them to somebody, but I'm sort of embarrassed that they're my friend, right? Like, who wants to do that? He risks the prospect of failure, but he risks all of it nonetheless. You see, getting personally involved will always add an element of risk in congregational life. There's an element of vulnerability when you get personally involved. We saw it again to mention the missionaries from this past week with Joel and Pastor Kristen. They moved their family from Oregon, (laughs) Oregon of all places, to the Middle East with their seven-year-old boy. For most of us, getting personally involved with church will not demand that kind of dramatic, like sounding risk, right? Like you gotta move across to the other side of the world, but there will be a vulnerability involved anytime you personally want to take responsibility and engage with the life of a congregation or church. Engaging congregations like ours will move you well beyond your comfort zones. Let me just warn you now, the comfort zone isn't in the sanctuary. Perhaps it's because you'll have to try something, like leading a group. Maybe, maybe you're you're old enough and wise enough to pass on some of that to somebody, even though you don't feel that way. Maybe it's about volunteering for a ministry. I don't really like kids. I don't really get a lot. I don't know what to do with kids. They intimidate me. They're goofy. I still feel that way, and I have two of them, right? Maybe you don't have, right, the, the gift. You're, maybe you're not outgoing, but you're called to extend hospitality to one another. Maybe you feel uncomfortable inviting people to church. I feel uncomfortable inviting people to church, and I get rejected by it all of the time. Trust me, right? 
But there's going to be a little bit of risk involved if we're going to personally engage and take responsibility for something that we care and love about. But this move into vulnerability is the very move of Christ Jesus in the world. This is what Paul communicates in those great words in Philippians 2, known as the Christ hymn. He writes, Though Jesus was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he empties himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was in the form of God, but did not consider his place as something to be used for his own advantage. That is, Jesus had rights. Jesus had the rightful claims for privilege and position. He did not consider those things, though, to be used for his own glory, for his own benefit, for his own gain, but for the sake of others. He risked emptying himself completely to take on the shame of the world that we find new life in him. We have to take the risk, church, of being personally involved in the life of our church. And there are, let me just say, this is not a criticism. There are many of you that do this already, but we have to do it more. We have to invite more people into this activities. Identifying those that we serve, reliance on prayer, and risking our personal involvement and responsibility, this is the kind of character it takes to contribute in meaningful ways to the community of faith. May we see the fruit of it in our church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.